welcome to episode 244 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Lydia Creech. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. In part two, we will be continuing our Truth and Fiction in the South series with 1985's The Color Purple and 2018's Hale County this morning, this evening. Uh, a quick note, if you have not gone to Cinematary.com this week, you should. we got a bunch of good reviews, some good writing on there. If you didn't uh, catch from last week, we have a review of Peterloo uh, and Missing Link. And, and Courtney wrote a review of Homecoming, the Beyonce film. Uh earlier this week so check it out on the site we also have our young critics ballot which is out today if you're listening to this on friday the ballot is on twitter it's available uh please vote in it well you know this is easily one of the most fun things and most uh probably the biggest things we do uh with the podcast every year and uh it's always interesting to see how the vote uh comes out you know it's it's it's, there's usually movies that i'm rooting for and rooting against and uh, so uh, I w- <laughs> a lot of interesting choices. Yeah, we had we had a bunch of people uh, participate last year, so hopefully we'll get some more uh, on this round. But uh, yeah, please do that. We'll have the link in the description as well as it, it'll be on cinematary.com. So check it out there. But let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. And Lydia, I'm going to kick off with you because you have a, a trio of movies you want to talk about. Oh, OK. Uh, I guess I'm going to talk about the one that's probably going to be the hardest to find first. I caught this movie on Mubi, which is a streaming platform that stresses me out because the movies leave really fast and I'm not good at time management, but it's a Korean film called Micro Habitat, directed by uh, John Go-Woon. I don't know who this woman is, but it's about a woman and she seems... I wouldn't say like kind of depressed because I don't think she's sad with her life. Just like a little bit arrested development. She cleans houses and has a glass of whiskey at a bar every night and smokes cigarettes. And that's just her life. And she's fine with it. But her landlord, like she's kind of like living on the edge. It seems like she doesn't have a lot. It's like a one room apartment. Um, And when her landlord raises the rent, she decides that she would rather be homeless than have to give up smoking or drinking. (laughs) (laughs) And so she, like, packs up her apartment into one suitcase and then pulls out a list called The Cruise, which is Couch Cruise. And she goes and does, like, this visit with, I guess, five members of people who used to be in a band with her in college. Uh, I didn't realize this the first time, but the first person's house she goes to, like, says their name and then keyboards, and I thought it was in the film. I was like, oh, he sells keyboards. That's a store sign. But then I realized that every person's house she would go to would be, like, their name and then what they did in the band. (laughs) It's a good little... I, I, I don't know if this is, like a funny film because like kind of funny weird things happens like all of her band members are living on the surface like way more successful lives than she does like they have actual houses and (laughs) like real jobs uh and (sighs) it seems like maybe they lost touch with each other after college And nobody's seen or heard from her, but I wouldn't call it quite like reconnecting because 
they all wind up kicking her out of their house after a few nights for whatever reason. Uh, but I liked it. I liked it a lot. <laughs> I think uh, Miso character's like really strange. She's got, I don't know, like some unspecified health problem that makes her hair turn white. And so she's got like some white streaks in her hair, even though she's, I guess, young-ish woman, middle-aged, not, not old enough to have white hair. But she's just really unconcerned, like with anything other than paying for cigarettes and getting to keep going to the bar that she likes for her single glass of whiskey. <laughs> and I was like, I think I really respect this. <laughs> but yeah, that's micro habitat. Don't know where it's available. <laughs> All right. Uh, the second one is <laughs> the second one for it f- seems way more widely available though uh, because it is on Netflix. Which one is? Oh, right. Sorry, I was looking at the order. <laughs> um, okay, so Netflix. I watched another movie directed by a woman, Beyonce. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's her oh, concert. Yeah, the movie I said I talked about. Okay. <laughs> It's her concert film from when she did Coachella in 2018, because I think it's made, it's shots of that, which she directed the live streams that was broadcast while it was going on. But also there's documentary footage of like rehearsal and her talking very candidly about how giving birth to her twins like almost killed her and then she was struggling a lot to go back to rehearsal go back to getting in shape to do these incredible dance numbers choreography like high energy concert for two hours straight uh and i'm just i don't know i'm in awe of like anybody who can dance and sing and be really on stage, but watching her coordinate like hundreds of dancers and musicians on stage. There's a reason I I don't feel like I'm doing her any justice. I like at all. You should just watch homecoming. Yeah. Well, it's on, it's on Netflix. I think that I haven't watched it yet, but I really liked Courtney's review, which is on the site. Much more, and you should read that. Yeah, don't listen to me. Read Courtney's review. <laughs> but yeah, no, it seems to, it seems to be one to check. I, I've seen uh, a couple people who said just as like a, as like a concert film, it's up there with you know you know stop making sense and some of the other like highlights of the of the genre. Would you agree with that? I think so. I also what Andrew texted me was like, it's like for people that only liked the first 10 minutes of climax, just like incredible choreography and dancing, but for two and a half hours. So without That's, any of the sad, text, crazy shit. <laughs> that was just a subtweet, though. He, he He's talking to like a specific fo- like four or five people. But it convinced me. to. <laughs> That's true. I mean, uh, Cool. Well, that's uh, Homecoming. It's on Netflix if you want to check it out. Uh, I'm going to tag team this next one with you. It's in theaters now. It's Missing Link. It's the latest film from Leica Studios. We've talked about them uh, a lot on this podcast. I even did a, a video essay on them last year. 
This latest one comes from the director of Paranorman, Chris Butler. He also wrote the film, and it follows Sir Lionel Frost, who is a uh, adventurer. Kind of, a, he investigates different myths and monsters, and so he is looking into the Sasquatch, who uh, is named Susan. It's vo- uh, Lionel Frost <laughs> is, is, is voiced by Hugh Jackman, and uh, Susan is is voiced by Zach Galifianakis, and. He learns that he was, you know, led to the, the the land of the Sasquatch in order to help him reach his cousins out in the uh, in the Himalayan mountains. And so naturally, you know, they they, they travel the world in order to uh, help the creature get to his home. Uh, Zoe Saldana has a has a, you know a voice character as well. There's a bunch of other British actors, but I love Leica movies so far. You know, there there hasn't been a a down one until I guess this one because yeah, I was wow. like I the story <laughs> is fine. It's really not like uh, reinventing the wheel here. It's and that's kind of that was kind of a bummer because Leica's stories usually have this really rich texture to them that reminds you of kind of peak Pixar where there really was like some emotional nuance to the 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 characters and and, and uh, narrative beats. But this one this one just was kind of kind of landed flat for me. Uh, Lydia, what were you gonna say? Well, I thought this one was so strange because I mentioned in my review that I think this is aimed at a much younger audience than normal, but none of the characters are children. And every single other Leica film, it's like a little bit of a coming of yeah, age yeah, thing, yeah. right? And this is... I guess like, it's supposed to... Tech, it's like a coming of adultness, you know, because he's... Okay, but I'm not a big fan of, like, grown-ass <laughs> men, like, having like, to come sh- of age. To, get like, your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No thanks. Yeah. Uh, no, I, and I, I would agree with that. And it's also like I can I kind of see the path that it's weaving, but I just feel like the other ones did it much more intelligently. Like they just added a lot more effect to it to make it seem to just be much more effectful uh, when you're like watching it. Um, I, I talked about it on Letterboxd, but the other thing that struck me was the the animation, which I feel like is always the butt of Leica movies. If you don't like them, you're like, yeah, it's, it didn't really work for me. But generally, people really are impressed with the animation because just the the time and effort and technique that has to go into uh, to crafting these films is you know unparalleled to any other animated film. It, like just the the work that they have to put into making this stop motion feature, and especially with the intricacies that these films have uh it requires a lot of work which is why we don't get these uh every year and it was just kind of a bummer because this animation really you know i was thinking back to what made uh all of the leica features and those are Coraline, paranorman uh the box trolls and and kubo Kubo. and the two strings so unique was that that it really did have like this um kind of vulgarity and and i mean that by like just kind of this this kind of twisted nature to the to to how they like character designs yeah to the character designs and it just kind of it 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 kind of was 
somewhat leaning in that direction, which which already kind of puts you in a uh, in a sense of where you were narratively. It, it, like it, it kind of informed the actions and the uh, motivations of the characters. And this one just felt very flat to me. Like I, I liked the costume design, but for the most part, the animation didn't just like floor me. There's 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 sequences in like Kubo that are just spellbinding. Um, they like made me cry. They were so pretty. Exactly, uh, but like this one, it just it, like it's just not very memorable. But uh, Lydia, you wrote about this for Cinematary, um, and we're positive, but at the same time, you you kind of had some reservations. It seemed like as well. Yeah, I mean, to your point about like not having any, I I, uh, I really 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 respect what they do, and I think it's such a shame because because this is like an action adventure film. There are a ton of like there's a full on brawl sequence and a bar and these like really exciting chase things i think there's like an inception not inception yes inception where the whole they're on a ship and it rolls and they got to run around on the walls and i'm like okay yeah like they obviously put a ton of effort into crafting these sequences and it must have been so so difficult but I, i i don't and I don't know if they're like trying to go more mainstream with like a pretty like genre e movie. Like we know about the gentleman explorer stories. Like you, know, you can kind of see where it's going, but like I don't. It didn't pay off. Like <laughs> to for for lack of a better phrase, it seemed like their most memeable movie and i say that because it's like it has these snippets that they that kind of they're trying to develop as moments that people would latch on as like that's a great moment in this movie um and it just it just kind of fell flat for me it seemed more like a like a like a story structure pattern that dreamworks or sony pictures animation would follow where it's just trying to uh capture those moments that you're uh, 45 year old uh, family members are sharing in meme form. I'm talking about minions there. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's as bad as minions because, I mean, Susan's it's not, not no, like it's not, an no, annoying it's, fucking sidekick. Like, no, it's not, but it's like trying to, it's trying to evoke this, uh, it's trying to evoke, have these kind of moments that almost stand outside of just the actual narrative to the movie. It kind of tries to have these, it seems like it has these moments that, uh, are, are, are somewhat trying to transcend just being a part of this movie. That's, I guess that's what I'm getting at. It is, let me just say it's in no way, like this is a drastically more, you know, much much more pleasurable experience than watching a minions movie so <laughs> i apologize for stepping in that yeah uh well I, i'm since you were you were a little bit more positive on this movie so I, i'm curious you know I, this was this is one that is just drastic it's just not doing very well at the box office which is which is very sad and so i know that's what, kind of one of the reasons why you wanted to encourage people to go see it i wouldn't also like feel bad sitting my kid down in front of it either because it's I, you're talking about memeable moments and like there's a lot of I don't know like slapsticky dumb humor but I mean it's got a lot of heart and I think it does have really good messages and <laughs> I mean not that that's why you take your kids to go see a movie I guess but I wouldn't be concerned about anything <laughs> in it it's not Song of the South <laughs> it's if, if you have to slap your kid in front of a movie you could do worse uh, that's what yes. you're saying um because I was like sitting there for the previews and it's like Angry Birds 2 and like some <laughs> movie about 
yetis i want to say and uh, oh I yeah, like, yeah i don't know like other animated kids fair and it just looks terrible and bland and i'm not i don't think missing link is i'm diligently taking that notes here. I, I would rather wa- i would rather watch this movie uh, a thousand more times than have to watch a second of secret life so. of pets <laughs> Which is, it sounds like damning with thank praise, but... Uh. Yeah, but it's... No, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's just, I have such a... It's kind of like what we've been going through uh, in the last probably decade or so with um, Pixar movies, where we were really... We were so, so high on a lot of their movies for so long that when a kind of... Not really a bad one, but just kind of a dud in, in comparison comes along. It seems like people are hating on it. That's not the case here. It's just we have such high watermarks for Leica as a studio that this one is just average, and that's kind of a letdown because um, I know I, I have high esteem for all the other features they've and done. And it feels like a dud for Leica is so much more painful than a dud for Pixar because of the amount of time you have to wait between each feature film and I really hope they don't stop. They're the only American animation studio that does stop motion. Like, they're really committed to it. Yeah, and I think that we need that because stop motion is such an interesting art. Uh, and they, in regard, even though I, you know, I kind of bash the animation a little bit, like it's still, like you said, there are, there are sequences that are really impressive. And I would uh, recommend if, if you're kind of not sure about missing link, I would recommend checking out Kubo and the two strings or Coraline, which just have some, uh, just gorgeously rendered animation sequences, um, that really make you rethink the form, but missing link, it's in theaters now. Uh, it probably won't be very much longer so i hope people, Mutton, yeah so hope catch a matinee <laughs> yeah i hope people go and check it out it, it is a fun time uh michael i'm gonna toss it over to you you have two movies you'd like to talk about yeah one um is a, a new ish movie it came out last year um called box lux it's got natalie portman in it um uh, and uh, a few other people you may recognize and um i i have this kind of bad habit of putting a i, I still subscribe to like the netflix dvd service um and so yeah it's kind of cool you can watch movies that uh, are otherwise out of print sometimes uh this movie is very much in print it just came out on dvd uh like a month ago or something but i'll i'll often forget about movies i put on my netflix queue and then i'll be surprised in the mail with like oh i kind of forgot why i put this one it's on here fun. it is kind of fun and, and one of the ones i got recently was uh vox lux um, which I, I believe Andrew Swafford uh, reviewed during your <laughs> TIFF coverage, and I think he said it was his least favorite film at TIFF. Did not. Uh, like I remember seeing him after that. He was not happy. He was not a fan. Um, and I'm not like a huge fan, but maybe I'm here as like a, a, a kind of like a moderate ballast to Andrew's hate. Because I didn't, I didn't hate it, hate it. Um, it's basically about, um, it's almost like a parable or like a, like one of those kind of uh, like a s- movies that are, they're not really satire, but everything's a symbol in the movie. It's meant to uh, make a statement about society. Uh, it's about this uh, girl who is the uh, one of a, she's a survivor of a uh, school shooting. That's basically Columbine. It like opens in 1999. And um, the like very first scene of the movie after this little opening narration uh, by Willem Dafoe, um, the opening scene is, uh, this kid walking into a school and like shooting a bunch of people. And it's like quite traumatic. Um, on my Netflix, uh, 
DVD, you know, on the envelope, they have the little plot synopsis, and all it said was that the main character, Celeste, went through a, like, violent traumatic experience or something like that, and um, if I had, like, remembered Andrew's review better, because uh, he went and saw it because of the school shooting element, but uh, if I had remembered Andrew's review better, I might have been prepared for it, but I was a little bit caught off guard, and that uh, kind of set me on edge for the rest of the movie, um, in a way that's probably intended, but also made me kind of uh, I mean, that's have my hackles exploitative? Up. Yeah, I don't know if I want to say exploitative because the entire movie is about, like, the kind of social fallout for, like, the trauma. So it's it's trying to make a statement about school shootings. It's not just using it for, like, cheap thrills. Um, and uh, so basically you see, like, this girl who has survived uh, a shooting at her school go on to, like, write a song with her sister who also survives um about like kind of her emotional reaction to this shooting and the song like gets picked up by a producer and essentially celeste the the main like pop star character is like brought into like the uh pop music machine because on the strength of her like song that she sings at like the uh the vigil after the shooting um and so like the movie kind of goes for maybe like uh 20 minutes or something like that with her as a teenager um, up through 9-11 and there's this moment where uh, some, her she's on tour or something in Europe as like a 14 year old pop star and her sister walks in and she's like oh my gosh someone uh, flew a plane into the World Trade Center or something like that and then it like cuts to like 2017 uh, and so like the movie becomes this whole like meditation on like meditation is the wrong word because it's not a meditative movie um, but it becomes <laughs> It becomes this kind of, like, abrasive statement about, like, what America has done with its traumas, and specifically the two traumas it, it deals with are, like, Columbine and 9-11. Um, and it's, its thesis, like, what it's trying to say, I think, is actually kind of interesting, even if it's not, like, entirely new, which is that, like, rather than actually confront trauma, um, America is more interested in kind of, like, commodifying trauma and making it kind of like using trauma to offer these like broad platitudes rather than actually address the root cause. And so like, uh, as a, the pop star Celeste as an adult is, uh, played by Natalie Portman in this like really abrasive performance where she's just like, uh, you know, really, uh, kind of pugnacious, uh, character who's just like, you know, figuratively just like spitting on everyone around her. And it's just really un unpleasant to be around. And like, you get a, and, you know, in going back and reading Andrew's critique of the movie, I think he kind of felt like that we were su supposed to view her as like this kind of opportunist who had used her trauma to like climb the social ladder um, to, you know, ascend to like A-list pop stardom or whatever. And I guess my take is not quite that. It's more that like the pop music machine has like exploited her like as a teenager, you know, she doesn't really have like I, you know, there's no way to have, like, a 14-year-old pop star that's not, like, exploit... That's that's not, like, an exploitative thing. Uh, so, like, she's been in the pop machine ever since, essentially, she survived the shooting. And, like, rather than... My take is that rather than uh, address, you know, kind of give her, like, some sort of therapy for her trauma, it's... She has to kind of relive and and use her trauma on stage, like, you know, every night when she sings. And so she becomes this character who's like very much still dealing with like internalized trauma, but has become this really like kind of, uh, 
poisonous and vitriolic character because she was never allowed the space to deal with it. And instead is this, you know, offering like this really kind of generic, uh, pop music. Um, and like, that's all really interesting. Um, except that I didn't like think it was actually that interesting in, in execution. <laughs> <laughs> Good in theory. Like, I don't know. So I was originally watching this, like my, and I said this on Letterboxd as well. Uh, I was watching this in the Sia, like uh, the the real pop star, like wrote the music for this movie, like the pop star songs that get sung. And I was watching this and thinking like, well, this is like an ironic, like piss take on pop music because it's so boring and I don't like this music at all. It's so, and I think that was kind of Andrew's takeaway too in the review where he was, he felt like that the movie was kind of taking a kind of, uh, superior like rockist perspective where like look at pop music it you know it's so endemic of the bloat of America and like whatever uh, the vapid bloat and that was sort of my take too because I was like well you know all these ideas are kind of interesting but ultimately the execution is kind of boring because this like pop music that the movie hinges on is really uninteresting and is a kind of like boring take on like what American pop music is like and then I go and read uh, interviews with the director um and uh, he's all talking about how awesome he thought the music was and, like, he wouldn't have chosen Sia's songs if the, he didn't think they were great. And, like, the last, like, 15 minutes of the movie is essentially a concert film uh, with this, like, fictional pop star. And he's like, I wouldn't have spent the last 15 minutes of my movie if I didn't think the music was great. And so, like, what he's trying to do is, like, explore, <laughs> like, what people find meaningful <laughs> about pop music and, and, and weigh that against, like, kind of, like, the corporate exploitative elements of it, and, like, somehow in the midst of that, like, create some sort of statement about, like, America's uh, relationship to, like, what comes out of trauma and that sort of thing, uh, and, like, especially national traumas like uh, 9-11 or Columbine, and I don't feel like that came across very well in the movie at all, because, I mean, maybe this is just me, maybe I'm the elitist, rockist person, but uh, <laughs> I did not like the music very much, or think it was, like, that engagingly staged, um, so it kind of like the movie, the movie just kind of falls down on its face on that level. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, I, I did, I did not come out hating it. Uh, I don't know if it would have been my least favorite movie at TIFF or not, but, uh, it's like a, I guess it was like a failed experiment. Uh, it's kind of interesting to like pick up the pieces of it, but, uh. I don't know that I had too strong of a reaction other than being like initially shocked that there was a school shooting at the beginning. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's just kind of floating around there uh, on streaming and, and DVD and such. So Netflix DVD. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you guys subscribe to Netflix, maybe you get the very DVD that I, that I watched. <laughs> See, that's the, that's the kind of stuff we're looking for that, to, you know, in, in listener engagement. <laughs> watch the yep. same dvd as michael that's right uh, i should have yeah, left well, a little mark on it so <laughs> that's very personal content a, a prize. uh you had one more movie that you wanted to talk about yeah um this is not on netflix i just got this from the library but uh, uh as as listeners are probably aware uh the legendary french uh filmmaker agnes varda uh recently passed away and um i've only seen one of her movies uh Probably the one that like most people, if they've seen any of her movies, have seen, which is uh, Cleo from Five to Seven. Um, but uh, I just recently watched uh, today. Actually, I watched um, her debut feature, um, which I'm going to butcher the title because I 
French is confusing, and I don't know which letters I'm supposed to pronounce or not, but uh, La Pointe Court, uh, I, I guess, uh, maybe, is that how I would pronounce it? Mm, I'm your guess is good as mine. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, so this movie is her uh, <laughs> film debut. It's uh, her directorial debut, I should say. Uh, it was uh, released in 1955, um, and it's, it's kind of like two movies not really squished together, but the movie kind of works in two modes. And the first is um, that there's this husband and wife who are walking around this kind of fisherman's town, I guess fisherman's village, and they're just like talking about their relationship. Um, so in that regard, it kind of feels a little bit like, um, you know, maybe like a like a more like rural version of like the before movies um, in the sense that you just have these two characters kind of matching wits talking about like how they feel about the relationship and like the wife is kind of they've been married for several years and the wife is feeling like they've changed and doesn't isn't really sure how much she's invested in the relationship anymore whereas the husband is kind of still interested in the relationship and there it, it kind of like becomes this really philosophical dialogue about like the nature of her relationships and love and and all that um and then the other mode the movie works in is uh kind of this uh this footage of the village surrounding them as they are walking around, like talking about the relationship. Um, and, uh, it's footage of just, uh, this town existing. Um, and basically like people going around their everyday tasks, a lot of them, like, you know, fishermen doing stuff with nets and boats and, and things like that. And every once in a while it intersects with what, uh, the characters are talking about, um, and the characters interact. But if you took out the, the kind of husband and wife character, it'd almost be like a, like a documentary of, um, uh, just as, like kind of a fly on the wall documentary of this fishing village and like what the day-to-day life is like. Um, and so I don't know, like it's, it's kind of interesting just on that, like kind of structurally where you get like this, um, you know, kind of very like, uh, gritty tactile, like footage of people doing kind of working class jobs. And then this husband and wife, like almost like elevated to abstraction, their relationship talking about that. Um, so that's cool. But another thing that I thought was cool about the movie is that being released in 1955, it like predates a lot of like what we would consider as kind of like that whole European, like new wave or whatever we want to call it, you know, like a uh, Fellini and Bergman. And of course, like a uh, Truffaut and Godard and, and all those uh, folks, but it feels like, very much of that in a way that it almost is like ahead of its time. Um, and there's like different points in the movie that feel like they're anticipating different, like kind of more, I guess, more famous, um, you know, European art house cinema of like the fifties and sixties. Like, um, there's like quite a lot that feels like, um, the 400 blows like in, in style, you know, um, these kind of like long takes of like people walking around these, uh, you know, uh, little kids running around and things like that. And then, uh, there's even like, a a part where the husband and wife are talking and the camera, um, does like, I guess people, what people would most be familiar with is like the persona, like really famous shot of like the character who one is in profile and one's looking at the camera and their faces kind of meld together. Um, like the, this movie does that twice. Um, and it's like, uh, I guess like, uh, 12 years before persona came out. Um, and there's just a lot of touches that feel like very much like what, like a lot of European cinema would be doing over the next 10 years, but this definitely feels like the, like a real early iteration of that, you know, the kind of like really like static camera that like sets things up in this like really painterly way and frames things interestingly. And, 
Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I guess like it's, it's a cliche in some ways to say like Agnes Varda is like kind of like the, un, like the ignored or, or unacknowledged part of the French new wave. And, um, based on the two films I've seen, that's probably true. She deserves a lot more, uh, credit than she's gotten, but like, especially this movie, it seems like she's doing stuff stylistically that her peers didn't arrive at until like several years later. Um, and it feels significant for that. Um, I don't know that it always hangs together. Like there's some stuff where they're like walking around and dialoguing where it, it's a little meandery and, and like at this point, I don't know if in 1955 it felt like this, but at this point it feels like I've heard this conversation about love before. Um, but like as a, as a work to come out of this particular time period, I thought it was really interesting. I'm assuming that's on the Criterion channel. Maybe I have the Criterion DVD. Um, it's like in a in their uh, oh, okay, like four by Varda set, which also has Cleo in it. Um, but I just got it from the library. But it is perhaps on the Criterion channel. Yeah, I think they had like a collection of her movies uh, when they started off. So. Um, cool. We'll check it out uh, either at your local library or on the Criterion channel, I assume. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll, we will be back talking The Color Purple in Hale County this morning, this evening, after this. Hey, Cinematariots. This is your co-host, Lydia Creech, with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shoutouts on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap review send us your thoughts through twitter and email share with your friends and family and sign up to be a patron we would truly appreciate it uh thanks for listening and now back to the show
goes for you. Ah. We are back with part two of episode 244 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be talking about 1985's The Color Purple and 2018's Hale County this morning, this evening. First, The Color Purple. It was directed by Steven Spielberg from a script by Menno Meges. Based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1982 novel of the same name by Alice Walker, the film stars will be Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, Danny Glover, Margaret Avery, Adolph Caesar, and Ray Don Chong. The film spans 40 years in the life of Celie, an African-American woman living in the South who survives incredible abuse and bigotry. After Celie's abusive father marries her off to the equally debasing Mr. Albert Johnson, things go from bad to worse, leaving Celie to find companionship anywhere she can. She perseveres, holding on to her dream of one day being reunited with her sister in Africa. According to Publishers Weekly in 1985, author Alice Walker was initially reticent about selling screen rights to her novel. She convened with a group of five women to discuss the merits of executive producers John Peters and Peter Gruber's offer. At this time, at that time, the men were known for their recent 1983 blockbuster Flashdance, and Walker was concerned about Hollywood's portrayal of women and African Americans. The friends concluded the only way to improve the exploitation of minorities was to work within the prevailing system, and Walker agreed to the deal. The San Francisco Focus reported in, 1980, in December of 1985 that Walker's contract stipulated she would serve as, proje- as project consultant and 50% of the production team, aside from the cast, would be African American, female, or people of the third world. Uh, Walker was also involved with casting and lobbied for lesser-known actors because their rise from obscurity represented the experiences uh, of co- characters in her novels. Walker selected Whoopi Goldberg to a star in her feature film debut as Seeley after seeing the comedian perform in a small San Francisco, California cabaret. However, San Francisco, the San Francisco focus maintained that uh, Whoopi Goldberg lobbied for a role in the picture before screening rights were, uh, the screen rights were sold. Uh, the focus also reported that producer Quincy Jones personally selected Spielberg to direct despite skepticism from Walker fans in the African-American community who questioned whether a white man could adequately capture the central story of a black woman. A 1985 article in the New York Times stated that Spielberg waived his salary to direct the $15 million picture and earned only the DGA required minimum wage of this is so like minimum wage of $40,000. I would take that. I know, right? That's my salary. <laughs> According to San, the San Francisco Focus, oh. Walker wrote a draft of the screenplay herself, but agreed to turn over the job to Mena Meje and on condition that she maintained script approval. She reportedly collaborated with him, adding lines and making adjustments during production. According to a 1985 article in the New York Times, Spielberg's then-wife Amy Irving went into labor on June 12, 1985, the same moment in which Spielberg was filming take three of the scene in which Seeley gives birth i just like that the, the randomness of that fact i don't even i doubt it's true but still 20, mem- <laughs> so I know. 20 members of the coalition against black exploitation released formal complaints about the about the film's alleged degrading representation of black men and subtle promotion of lesbianism claiming that such portrayals conveyed a negative message that is potentially destructive to the black family the organization demanded access to the shooting script and meetings to discuss changes in the narrative although warner brothers representatives were reportedly quote sympathetic and cabe received a letter signed by both quincy jones and alice walker the filmmakers did not agree to a meeting and a demonstration took place in front of jones's la office several days after the film's opening the national association for the advanced of colored people the NAACP joined CABE and it's concerned about the depiction of black men but hailed the production for employing more African American actors and filmmakers than any motion picture to date since Sounder in 1972 
Spielberg said on the criticisms of the movie, most of the criticism came from directors that felt that we had overlooked them and that it should have been a black director telling a black story. That was the main criticism. The other criticism was that I had softened the book. I have always copped to that. I made the movie I wanted to make from Alice Walker's book. There were certain things in the lesbian relationship between Suge Avery and Seeley that were finely detailed in Alice's book that I didn't feel could get a PG-13 rating, and I was shy about it. In that sense, perhaps I was the wrong director to acquit some of the more sexually honest encounters between Suge and Seeley because I did soften those. I basically took something that was extremely erotic and very intentional and I reduced it to a simple kiss. I got a lot of criticism for that. Although Walker had reservations about the film version of The Color Purple, she noted that she never expected the picture to replicate the novel and that, quote, successful does not mean perfect, successful is adequate. The New York Times said, Mr. Spielberg has looked on the sunny side of Miss Walker's novel, fashioning a grand multi-hanky entertainment that is pretty and lavish as the book is plain. If the book is set in the harsh, impoverished atmosphere of rural Georgia, the movie unfolds in a cozy, comfortable, flower-filled wonderland. Some parts of it are rapturous and stirring, others hugely improbable, and the film moves unpredictably from one mode to another. From another director, this might be fatally confusing, but Mr. Spielberg's showmanship is still worth still with him. Although the combination of his sensibilities and Miss Walker's amounts to a colossal mis- mismatch, Mr. Spielberg's color purple managed to ha- manages to have momentum and worth, warmth and staying power all the same. The Chicago, Chicago Tribune praised the film as triumphantly emotional and brave, calling it Spielberg's successful attempt to enlarge his reputation as a director of youthful entertainments. And Roger Ebert said the world of Seeley and the others is created so forcibly in this movie that their corner of the South becomes one of those movie places like Oz, like Terra, like Casablanca, that lay claim to their own geography and our imaginations. The affirmation at the end of the film is so joyous that this is one of, my, of the few movies in a long time that inspires tears of happiness and earns them so on that note let's dig into the color purple um i'm curious to start with just kind of breaking this down kind of as a steven spielberg movie i want to just touch on this at the beginning because uh i kind of agree with um the the one part of the new york times where it's it's it seems like a very odd pairing having steven spielberg making this alice walker novel Mm -hmm. and uh even odder considering his previous movie was uh the temple of (laughs) jones and the temple of doom which is like um I mean, not not genre wise, but I mean, someone saw that movie and was like, you know, who's going to make our, you know, sensitive treatment of Alice Walker's novel? The guy who did the definitely insensitive treatment of people of color uh-huh. just a year prior. Yeah. So so I guess what what did you make of the of the color purple as a Steven Spielberg product? Um, I I'm a huge Steven Spielberg fan. Um, I feel like so there's like um. So he makes like E.T. in like 1982. And then I think the period immediately following E.T., which E.T. is great, but immediately following E.T. all the way through like the the end of the 90s, I think is like Steven Spielberg not at his best at all. And part of that has to do with, um, I think one of the reviews kind of alluded to it, like his like intentionally trying to broaden his palette, which isn't like bad, um, he's got a lot of like interesting stuff, but I think a lot of it, especially like these, um, he's got like a, at least three movies that I would kind of call like, um, like wannabe prestige movies. They're not wannabe prestige cause they ended up being prestigious, but like there's this and then there's empire of the sun. And then like later in the nineties, he did Amistad. And I feel like all three of them are like consciously dealing with like really weighty themes about like race and colonialism and, and all that. 
but in ways that aren't ever like as satisfying as they need to be. Um, and I, I, colored purple is like exactly like that for me where I, I, I feel like I, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work as a whole for me. Like there's individual moments I think are really good, but I, I think it just feels compromised in a lot of ways that are like, some of it's like plot and structural, but some of it also is just like Spielberg approaches movies with a particular sensibility, especially at this point where like his, he's one of the reasons I love him is he's like extremely like formal uh, and like is really attracted to these like, you know, really beautifully staged like tableaus and, and uh, stuff like that. You know, like the really famous stuff is like, you know, the, the sunset behind like the sisters at the end of the movie and like things like that. And I just, that approach like yields for some really great imagery, but it's just at odds with what the narrative wants to be, I feel like. And I, I just don't feel like it works entirely. A lot of the color purple is goofy in a pretty bad way. <laughs> I thought, um, I haven't read the novel, but I just, there were some wild tonal shifts that I just didn't quite know what to do with that. I felt were probably what Steven Spielberg was bringing to it. And then there would be followed by these, I mean, still pretty powerfully emotional scenes. I'm the one that got me, I think was the scene where Suge and Celie kiss. Like it starts off just like this weird dress up thing. And like, she's being very girly and childish. And then this really sad kind of, tender kiss and I was like I don't you swung too wildly just within this scene for it to hit the way I think it's supposed to I kind of like some elements of that and like his next kind of like prestige movie Empire of the Sun I think does that better where it like creates these kind of like goofy almost like childlike scenes that he then like intentionally undercuts like there's this like really famous scene in Empire of the Sun where like uh, the atomic bomb goes off um, at the end of World War II and the this kid character, before you realize it's the atomic bomb, this kid character is thinking it's like this magical moment where he sees this white light, and it's kind of like this goofy like sentimentality that Spielberg is known for. And then like he, it kind of is about like you know the atomic bomb and and all that. And there's like things in this movie that feel like that to me, where there's, it's like consciously trying to like create this like irony of tone. Um, like another scene is like where there's that like almost wordless scene where like. Um, uh, I'm blanking on, on the characters' names, but Danny Danny Glover's characters on Mr. the horse on one side of a tree line. I'm sorry, what? His name's just Mister, I think. Okay, yeah. So Mister's on the horse on one side of the tree line, and there's uh, the um, uh, uh, Celie's sister is on the other side of the tree line, and they're like doing this weird like peekaboo thing through the trees. Oh, I and then oh. and then it turns into a rape <laughs> yes. scene, and like. It doesn't work, but it's this weird, like, I feel like it works in the way that Spielberg wanted it to, but it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he's clearly very good at his craft, and whatever he thinks he's doing, he's accomplishing it, but there's too much... I mean, I don't know what the right way to do this is. And again, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know what the source material is like. But there's so many, like, hugely horrible things that happen. And just kind of the way he treats them, I I don't feel like I got any sense of Celie's character. I was like, she wouldn't act like this. I, I think it, 
I think Surely. it just comes down to. I mean, it's he just was not right was for this. And I, and I, and, like yeah, and, I, and I agree yeah. with, with with Michael. I'm a giant Steven Spielberg fan, but watching this, I was like, no, he's he's wrong for this uh, for this material because he just has a he just doesn't understand the the uh, what what the, the kind of the inner inner thoughts and the you know inner workings of Celia as a character. Um, he kind of just misunderstands a lot of these characters and the way he represents people. Uh, a lot, you know, the, the the different people and different characters in this film seems to be more of just a. He seems like just reading through the quote on on the criticisms, like he's he's a he I, he probably has a sense of awareness to it, but just watching the film, the thing I always think of is like early in the movie, um, you do have these kind of. Uh, you know, the sinister kind of scary sequences between Mister and Seely as 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 he's just uh, you know abusing her left and right. And at first, I didn't realize that John Williams did not do the score for this. Quincy Jones did the score for it, but it still has this very Williams esque uh, whimsy to it, and it just feels uh, radically like the whole montage of her like doing tours for him. I was like, why are you? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's like it's so, played like a joke. It's so it's, ra- it's so radically uh, <laughs> out of touch. With, with what's going on here. And I think of this compared to something like Mudbound, which is much more understanding of the people involved in the film. Uh, yeah, it's just, it was just like Spielberg wasn't the person to, ha- be, to ha- get yeah. this made, or at least make this. You know, he just was the wrong person. That's not a indictment on his skills. It's just, it's just not what the material needed. I have read the book. And one thing that struck me as I was, I had seen this years ago and I was rewatching it yesterday. Um, One thing that struck me as I was watching it is like it has this weird uncanny feeling of like he's he's like he's like acting. He's like going through the motions of the novel, but doesn't quite seem to understand like the through lines of it. So like I guess my analogy I would make is like maybe this is like a dumb analogy, but in like um, Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, a lot of the line readings in that movie are really strange. Um, and the reason for that is that the kids couldn't memorize all their lines. And so um, there was like a dude, like the acting coach or whatever, would feed them the lines like one at a time. And the kids would read the lines like out of context, like as they were being fed. So like, you know, the acting coach would say, you know, all right, now say this. And then the kid would say this. And like, that's like weirdly like the feeling I get from this movie with Spielberg is that like he's read the book he knows like what literally he's being told by the book to show, but there's no understanding of like how it fits into the broader conversation of the movie. I think that's a great metaphor analogy. Um, so let's, let's, let's dig a little bit more into the, uh, into these characters. And I, so this was kind of the, I guess, acting awakening for a lot of people with, uh, with Whoopi Goldberg as, as Seely. Um, you know, just as 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 a character, what did you what did you make of Seely? You know, it, it, it's uh, it, 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 strangely and strangely enough, this 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 film kind of reminded me of the like kind of a little bit touching back on the handling. It reminded me of To Kill a Mockingbird in terms of how it how it handled the plot. But I mean, um, what what did you make of 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 Celie as a character? And I guess we can kind of touch a little bit on the uh, the the lesbianism criticism that that is imparted on this movie. I mean, I already mentioned it. Like, I found her character weirdly childlike, and I don't know if maybe you can be like, oh, it's because she got married so young at fourteen, so she just stayed there 
emotionally and, and I'm like I don't think that's true of this one <laughs> surely not but the way she uh Whoopi Goldberg played Celie was very much like shy and demurring <sighs> but not uh, I like uh. <laughs> So it's frustrating because you don't dictate how people respond to like traumatic things that happen to them or characters or whatever. But it, it just seemed weirdly not there. I know what you mean because, and I think part of the problem, and maybe this goes back to like the problem of adaptation, is that like, so the book is extremely interior um, and makes it in some ways like hard to adapt to the screen because like most of the book is basically the kind of a. Uh, voiceovers we get occasionally like the book opens with like um celia writing letters to god and um so in the book you it's it's less about what celia's doing and more about how celia is reacting to what's around like uh observing what's around her and stuff like that so the book doesn't give you a lot of like what is celia like outwardly when she's doing chores right we know a lot of like what she's thinking about at the time and but the book doesn't give us that. And I, I feel like with the kind of like almost like the way the movie feels almost like dictation of the book is maybe they didn't know how to fill in like that exterior because the book only gave, gives you so much interior. I, mean, I, I do kind of get caught up in it by the end. I, you know, as, as much as I was down on it a second ago, like I think there are things about this movie that work really well and like by the end, when you you get the like sister relationship, the final sequence is is super. I don't know. It moved it, like it worked for me. Like I like I was yeah. pretty like oh just kind of eh, lukewarm on the movie up to that point. But that sequence is fantastic. It's a really it's and a like, really yeah like everything sequence. from like the the like gospel like church sequence through the end, which I guess is like the final ten minutes or whatever. I think it's just like really good. Um, it's it's super long. <laughs> it's a three-hour movie. <laughs> is the problem with what you just said? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, parts of it work, parts of it don't. Um, some of the stuff like I was criticizing, like I feel like actually really get me interested in like Celia as a character. Like, um, there's this really great scene where like the characters, because of the staging of it, the characters kind of trading off whether or not they're represented by shadows in the shot or represented like actually physically present in front of the camera. And, like, that's, like, this really interesting moment, I feel like, of Celia and um, her sister that, like, I feel like, for once, like, Spielberg's, like, kind of hyper-formalist approach, like, serves the movie well and, like, has something interesting to say about this that character's relationship with somebody else. But then, yeah, there are other parts, like what you're talking about, like, with the, the montage of housework or whatever, where it, there's no real sense of an interior life or why she's acting that way, so... I'm on the fence. I don't think that's Whoopi's fault, though. No, no. I would say that's screenwriting and, and direction, probably. So, I guess kind of comparing it to the documentary that we paired it with, Hale County, this morning, this evening, I was thinking about what connected these two films. And I think the one thing that I kind of latched onto, you know, about halfway through watching Hale County was it. both of these kind of capture... Uh, their characters kind of uh, what's the you know sitting under a 
you know some sort of apparatus that's not you know, not allowing them to truly like break out of their environment um i think that uh Seely, you know while having much more pronounced uh and uh you know te- you know terrifying and sad uh actions against her or at least we, we're not seeing th- things like that to quincy and and daniel or yeah just daniel and uh in hale county um i feel like like all three of those characters you know the two people and, and the one character very much is working up against the ceiling that they're trying to bust through because if they can bust through that ceiling they can kind of break out of this the the kind of co- constraints that uh that their life is, you know, that they're forced to, to be in, you know, just because of their life circumstances and where they live. Um, but I mean, did you, did you all find anything that kind of connected the, the story in the color purple to uh, what Ramel Ross shows us in Hale County? For me, it was like a bunch of the, the feeling behind these shots were totally different, but the color purple has like a lot of you said like really compelling gorgeous images in the service of like this weird sentimentality and Hale County this morning this evening also has like a lot of really I think pretty interesting shots and perspectives but it feels uh I don't know not dreamy but I don't know how to describe the atmosphere I feel like that uh, I don't want like the color purple to be exactly like Hill County, which I love Hill County a lot. Um, you know, I, I like the kind of like the the kind of grand plotting of, of color purple that like I don't think Hill County could support. But like, there's something inside of the style of Hill County that I think is what is missing in the color purple. And I I don't know exactly how to like articulate it, except that like both like you said are going for these like beautiful images. But Hale County like understands the texture of those images in a way that like I I don't think that the color purple does and so there's there's yeah like there's almost like this kind of transcendence or sentimentality almost in both movies, but Hale County just feels like very much like grounded in like what is it what it feels like to be part of that and like there's like the the really like awesome sound design in Hale County and like just the the like close ups of things that give you like this this really tactile feel to a lot of these transcendent images and moments that the color purple, there's like this remove from it. And some of it's like intentional, like this like weird, like ironic distance. And then I think some of it is just missing the mark, but like there's just something like uh, really like alive about Hell County that I would love to have seen in the color purple. I mean, I think also Hell County gets at this aspect of community, like Seely's weirdly very isolated and cut off and like her problems are immediate and personal and then Zach you had mentioned the characters in Hell County I mean they're real people but also it's much more based in like a community of people it seems like they have family and their problems are kind of more explicitly maybe systematic or because of the culture they're in it's not like one person's being abusive yeah, that's that's and so that's what I'm. I was kind of getting at at the when I when, at the beginning of the question because um, both Quincy and, and Daniel seem like uh, like the, they're trying to break out of the the system that's kind of just in place for them. They, there's not there's no real uh, breaking above the ceiling just because 
um, it's just so drastically difficult for somebody to, in, in their financial situation and just the financial situation and outlook, it seems like, of the entire county in, in Alabama uh that it that you know it's just it's gonna be impossible there, there's the one sequence where Ramel Ross is in the car with uh with uh is it Quincy you know Daniel is the basketball player um with Daniel and he's in Daniel attends Selma University and which you know it's it's fine but it's not you know when it comes to like being a college basketball player it's not duke it's not north carolina you know it's not like this big prestigious like he's gonna immediately go to the nba school and he's talking about what he needs to do in order to become better and get the you know garner the notice of of these these big schools and even possibly move on to the nba um and the way he's kind of just like processing that like you do uh like you kind of do root for him because he seems like this kid who's passionate who who, who seems to clearly seems to be putting in the work like he's not just slouching around like you see him in the gym you see him working out like he's putting in the effort in order to achieve this goal but at the same time just watching um where a lot of the other uh people that you see in this movie are in terms of uh, their socioeconomic status you know that there's only so much more he can do just because um you know where he is at Selma University, and and you know where what that means. You know, moving on into greater basketball pastures is just very much a, a dream. Like there's just no, there's no real road to that. Um, and I, I I feel like that's that's something that you kind of notice as a through line between both films. What did y'all think of like? Because the one character that I feel like maybe does butt against like systemic issues in a way that is similar as like Oprah's character in the color purple. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk which about is, her. Like, the, her, her character is like the one point at which like, you know, white people show up in the movie. Um, and like her whole like plot about, you know, her experience in jail and then her experience as like a, um, like a, is it a maid? Is that what she, I, you know, a, you know, that, that like feels like very much like conscious of like, at least to me, like some of the systemic stuff and the way that that's just really derailing any sort of like. I, well, I mean, I, I think Alice Walker probably intended to critique systematic things. Uh, in one of your reviews you read, Zach, you mentioned a lot of people were outraged because of how cruel all the men were in the color purple. And it's like, well, I probably she was pointing to their cruel because there are these systematic things like pervasive racism all through society and then just just constantly turning around and passing it down it's like well there's also just the, but, the system of like i mean you see it from ha- the way that mister's dad treats him so in turn yes. he treats the other people around him you know it's you, you see that chain of uh you know the the nature nurture type thing but sorry i interrupted you but no that's i thank you uh what was like Oh, but I think with Oprah's character, I mean, again, this is why I think Steven Spielberg is probably the wrong choice for that because she has been like put in this domestic servant role, and but he goes for goofy again with the white ladies as well, so like when she can't reverse the car or whatever, it's like a big laugh. And I'm just. And God, is that li- the the scene where she's trying to back up the car and the men are trying to help her, and she's like like becoming frightened because all of these black men are surrounding her trying to help her. It's just, 
the way that Spielberg like, maybe Frank, that's a comment, but it, it, he just <laughs> well, the way he 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 sets it up is just so it's just so strange. Like I just don't I didn't know what to parse from that. Like I was just uncomfortable watching it. Exactly. So I mean, maybe there is some of that, like trying to put in critiques of whatever white lady privilege she thinks that she has and could like ruin these men's lives if she wanted to or if she got scared uh but it's played like a joke (laughs) i don't know yeah well and there's even like like the big moment where oprah uh like punches the the uh the mayor you're right and there's like this kind of like really showy like shot where she like was winding up and then like a train and the car goes or the the car passing and then when the when that finishes he's just on the ground and it's almost like a there's like a punchline element to that it's that not quite a mr mr tibbs or whatever uh heat of the night it's like where you actually see the slap or punch land which is what the big deal was i don't like i don't know what you do in spielberg I, I think, again, like, Spielberg is just, like, interested in, like, ooh, wouldn't it be interesting if uh-huh. I did this without any real understanding of, like, what the context, like, requires. And so he's like, wouldn't it be neat if, like... Well, it's like a comedy I beat. had a shot in what... Right. And he does this in, like, earlier movies of his, which, like, work really well in the kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek, like, genre context that he's using, like, in 1941 or uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or things like that, where there's these, like, really showy techniques that are, like really kind of glibly playing with like you know violence or or different beats that you know are coming um but in those movies i mean those movies are much more lighthearted, and their purpose is to be kind of ironic and and silly whereas in this movie he's still doing that same thing and it's just not uh it it, it feels dissonant i want to kind of shift over to uh more to Hale County this morning, this evening now. Um, I mentioned before, it's directed by Ramel Ross, uh, and we've talked a little bit about it, but it captures these small uh, but very precious moments in, in black lives in Hale County, Alabama. Uh, so a little bit about Hale County, Alabama. In the 1930s, the uh, Farm Security Administration commissioned Walker Evans to document the effects of the Great Depression in the southern states. Uh, Evans' signature ph- photographic perspective established a new documentary aesthetic and um, would really define the region um but his view of southern poverty was crystallized in the summer of 1936 when he went to hale county alabama with the writer james ag on assignment for fortune magazine their documentation of poor white sharecropping families became the landmark book let us now praise famous men um ross a couple quotes this was on the on where he got the idea of the film from he said the idea for the film started small and grew through a series of aha Oh no, aha, oh no, moments. During the film, filming and thinking process, an underlying interest of mine resuscitated itself to investigate the return to home of a northern black American. My large format photography was already invested in the exploration of this particular perspective in the film and and its form emerged from that critical inquiry. I eventually knew I wanted to make a film that looked closely at vast stretches of Quincy and Daniel's lives and witnessed the uh, ephemeria of the human project. The latter in the context of the historic south the origin of black american aesthetics and in that i wanted to make a film that formally and conceptually strove toward engaging the visual complexity of being black on his intentions with the film he said they were quite simple to exalt daniel and quincy's lives from our centrality the uh, looking out from the black community in the documentary genres language of truth immediately the problem of agency and historical imaging emerged i realized i could not faithfully represent 
represent the lives of Daniel and Quincy without acknowledging the trouble of representation, that any viewer's engagement with their lives without first confronting that influence of racism on our perception was irresponsible. It was the trappings of representation that called for a response, responsive form, the use of an almost claustrophobic subjectivity and associative editing techniques to give the film a double consciousness. It became possible that a conversation with historical imaging of African Americans could be the, the passive aggressive, aggressive content of the film. He said on the vis- visual language of the film, the camera in Hale County isn't there to point to a person or something and say to the audience, look at that, that is happening. The film is used in as much as is possible as an extension of my consciousness, part of my experience there, which must then pull the viewer further from their vantage point of outsider and closer to mine. It's really the proximity to things that d- determines how much of them, them we understand. And so the film takes a radically subjective approach to bring people closer to them. He said, uh, the New York Times said, uh, pure, called it pure cinematic poetry, posing, poses a quietly radical challenge to assumptions about race, class, and the aesthetic of filmmaking. The Village Voice said, it's not every day that you witness a new cinematic language being born. Hale County traverses years, encompasses tra- tragedy and beauty, all in just 76 minutes. And the LA Times said, void of the traditional struggle on which documentaries about the black experience often center, Hale County ruptures conventional and often stereotypical depictions of black people to create an experience that is simple, complex, and revelatory. Um, so talking a little bit more about Hale County, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult movie. I think a little to kind of verbalize like what, what you make of it, because it is, it's just such a, it's just a visual uh, experience. You're, you're kind of uh, really having to work your, um, your, your kind of filmic knowledge muscles in order to, I think, understand uh, what Ramel Ross is presenting to you. Um, Michael, I'm going to turn it over to you because I know you were a big a big fan of this film. Um, I guess what's the, what's the thing that you kind of... Uh, what attracts you, attracts you most about kind of what Hale County and, and Ramel Ross are doing? Yeah, I, I love this movie. Um, it was one of my favorite movies of last year. Well, kind of retroactively, I didn't see it until early this year. Um, but I think it's great for a lot of reasons. Um, the one that I'm most interested in is just the way that it evokes a sense of place. Um, like in a, in a real, in a really like, I mean, they, they talked about like using like a subjective point of view. And I, I, I feel like this movie in a way that I was like, so very, very, very rarely see movies do evokes the, uh, the feeling of like being in a place and it's not just like being a like it's not just a place it's like the experience of being there that it gets like so wonderfully evoked in this movie um i've seen someone some people compare it to like kind of like wiseman by way of malik um and i i feel like the wiseman connection doesn't that's not me because wiseman is is an outs is always like an outsider. Like you're always like observing things under a mic, like a magnifying glass. Whereas this movie, you've like stepped into someone's head, like as they're like living in this space. And I just love that. Like all the shots of like the stuff that people actually look at, um, you know, rather than like what we're kind of trained by cinematic language to expect, like the, the, uh, formation of like a, like the dimensions of an area that's not like really what people look at. That's like what cinema has like conventionally like used to like establish shots, like, you know, like wide shots or whatever. Um, but like this movie is always like focusing on like, like someone's finger. You're just like looking at like out of context, like someone's fingers doing something or like, 
uh, like a post in the ground or like things like that, that I, it just really evokes like what it actually is to walk around someplace and you, you notice all the little things and you never actually step back and walk like very rarely when you're actually walking around in your day-to-day life, do you like sit back and like, I need to get a really like, you know, extreme long shot of this so I can take in all the details at once. It's like when you're walking around, you create a sense of where you are by the accumulation of all these little details um, that you just, you, you perceive like through your senses. And this movie does that in a way that I just think is like, like really great and evocative. Lydia, this was your first time watching it. Uh, I, 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 I heard you perk up in the uh, Wiseman by way of Mallet comparison. Um, what did you what, what did you make of Hale County as somebody who has uh, studied um, a lot of Wiseman? I mean, I think you already dismissed that comparison out of hand, Michael, because what Hale County is trying to do it is like from the get go, intentionally much more subjective and like tries to capture like a feeling and an atmosphere of the community and the place and time. Whereas Wiseman's quote unquote objective with his camera, but, but like more interested in methods and processes and like not characters necessarily. Cause he doesn't like turn his subjects into characters, but I thought the, um, through line was a little bit hard to follow with Hale County. I wasn't, it, it took me a second to like settle in and like figure out, Oh, this is what the experience of watching is going to be like. Um, and I don't know if it ever really did find its thesis other than putting like these images on screen. So that's also not quite as good as a comparison to Wiseman. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's 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 the first feature, right? So yeah, well, and I think it's also a movie that it like I I remember the first time I saw it. it you do have to kind of work to uh, establish the like how am I viewing this um, because it it does give you this kind of um, as as Michael you know just said very well uh, you know just this 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 language that it's using um is kind of bucking the the more traditional cinematic language techniques that you would become accustomed to and so you're trying to understand the points and the parts that uh you feel like are important to digest and um yeah it's just kind of it's it's feeding you so many just very uh you know somewhat poetic images that you're trying to uh you're just trying to 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 understand what what it's trying to say all at once and i think that uh it takes you a while to understand like to figure out what you got to do i guess in order to uh to best experience it yeah yeah the filmmaker also puts himself in the documentary one of the sequences i actually really liked was he was filming i mean it's a great shot of like a tire fire and he goes up from the fire and is just looking at the smoke and like trees are in the background and then sunlight filters through and then he also captures this conversation of I guess a neighbor or somebody who lives nearby is like what are you doing why are you filming this (laughs) explain to me what's going on (laughs) and I actually really liked that he kept that audio in there 
I also just like the moments of uh, to coin a wonderful phrase by one of my middle school coaches hap- of just happy slapping, where it's just two guys who are just kind of punching or slapping at each other uh, <laughs> because there's just not there's nothing else to do. There, it's there's literally nothing else you could be doing. There's there's nothing happening. They're like there's like one late in the film where they're just in a parking lot and they're play fighting, and it reminds you of like um, <laughs> like in a nature documentary when there's like two lion cubs and they're just kind of like attacking at each other and they're not angry they're just like bored and need something to entertain themselves and it's like it's just these two these two guys who are just like circling each other and kind of hitting each other and laughing and slapping and laughing like it's just it it feels like almost something out of like a discovery channel documentary where you're just watching it's just two men in the wild acting dumb (laughs) you know it's 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 i i love those moments because they feel um I don't know there's just this genuine uh nature to them how do you guys feel like um i mean we talked a little bit about the um like you know politically or whatever like the comparisons to um color purple but i remember one of the things when we were planning this series we were talking about was just like the depiction of the south as, as a as a region and uh the color purple takes place in uh is georgia right um, and then this is Alabama, you know, which are, I, I feel like rural Georgia and rural Alabama are like, to, to broadly generalize, they're like kind of roughly analogous as far as regions of the South go. Um, how, how did you guys, how did you guys feel like, um, it serves as like a depiction of like the South as, as a region or whatever mini sub, sub region of the South we're in? I mean, I think that's what I was trying to get at when I was talking about they both have beautiful images, but Spielberg, like Spielberg, ah, it's like, so it's like a sentimental thing. It's very, I think he said it's like a period piece too. So there is a bit of mythologizing the setting a little bit. And then Ebert's review talked about fucking Tara, which is <laughs> gone with the wind. great comparison. And, and like Hale County. Well, he also used Oz too, which is like this highly constructed like set. Um, which I, I feel like speaks to what you're talking about, where color purple is like a cinematic creation more than a, a, a real place. Like the South has never existed like that, <laughs> except in the movies. And I don't know if Hale County's, I mean, it's kind of trying to do its own, like recontextualizing the South, I think, but from a more insider perspective, it's like someone who actually lives there. <laughs> I think the 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 kind of southern depiction that you get that feels that you know it's not just kind of it it's interesting that, that it's especially in the press kit notes where I got uh the thing about uh, some information on Hale County and it talked about Wal- uh Walter Evans's work with James AG kind of going through the south and and picturing and how that kind of became an image of the region this this poverty-stricken uh you know the, the, well, th- specifically they're looking at like white sharecroppers but you also kind of get this uh, this concept of poverty we talked a little bit about it when we were talking about deliverance and hillbilly as well where you just kind of had this snapshot um that has this uh power to kind of define a region for a long time and i feel like probably evan's work really gave you know even though it was about white sharecroppers it gave an it gave this kind of concept of poverty and it probably was um 
even more heightened when it came to the African American population in the in the region. And so the the thing that's that's so um, genuine and, and real about Hale County is that there is this large degree of empathy for these characters. Like you, like you can tell that Ramel Ross as a, as, as a human outside of just being the director of the film is, is, is absolutely rooting for these people just because he can see them trying to uh, just live their lives to the, 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 to the best and most successful that they can. Um, but he also, you know, is able to kind of catch these subtleties in, in his documentation of just, um, the ways in which, uh, you know, th- th- that depiction that, that Evans had so long ago still kind of rings true. Um, but he, it feels like rather than just being a snapshot, he's giving those, the, the people in those images, like a voice. Um, and so like you, you think of like the scene when Daniel's mom is talking and I forgot, maybe, maybe you guys can fill in on where, she, what specific kind of factory she works at. They talk about how she's been, or it's, it's with catfish. And, uh, and so she, and she's been doing it for like 20 years. Um, and you I, like, I can see that image as like a photograph, uh, you know, trying to document the, you know, a group of people who are, who've been working in a, like a factory line for so long, but just her kind of sitting there, um, literally just kind of shooting the shit to an extent, I feel like informs you more, uh, than that image would. Well, I, that will wrap up our episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary at Twitter handle at cinematary on letterbox.com uh, letterbox.com slash cinematary where you can see all the movies that we talked about in this episode. And finally, for our patrons, I always forget to uh, add to like put this link up so that I'll talk about it. So I'm just going to kill time as I pull it up in the web message thing. Uh, so thank you to Cam, Chad Newsom, Christopher Metcalf, Matthew Lingo, Maggie, Ron Hayes, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. We very much appreciate uh, your patronage. Um, and you should have a message if you have not... Um, Check your email or whatever. Uh, some nice, uh, some nice upcoming Ooh. news and, and good stuff for you all. So please, uh, if you have not joined Patreon yet, uh, please do, and you can uh, get that message too with all the goodies. Um, we're gonna keep this series going next week. We got two more weeks. Uh, our next week's pairing is 1997's Four Little Girls with 2014's Selma. Um, so I hope if you have not listened. Yeah, if you have not, uh, you not covered or not Civil listened rights. to uh, previous episodes, please go back. We've uh, so far just a. I'm really, really happy with how this series has turned out. It's been fantastic so far. And then, like I said before, please go vote on Young Critics. It looks like it will be another good showing. Um, but until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>